It's time for America Outdoors Radio, the show that covers the outdoor scene across the U.S. of A. and the entire continent. Fishing, hunting, conservation, outdoor recreation, and great destinations, we cover it all every week. It's your country, your outdoors. Let's explore it together with your host, John Cruz. Welcome to the show. The week ahead is a big one for a couple of reasons. Number one, Labor Day weekend is next weekend, and if you want to avoid the crowds and craziness of this last hurrah for many summertime outdoors enthusiasts, you'll want to get out camping, boating, or fishing early this week instead. The other big deal, that would be the start of dove hunting season in many states across America starting September 1st. If you are into a low-key, good-time hunting experience with lots of birds and socializing and a whole bunch of shooting, the dub opener is always a whole bunch of fun. I plan on heading out with my son, and I hope you'll get out there too. This week on America Outdoors Radio, we've got some great guests for you with information about fishing, hunting, and conservation. One of them is Brandon Butler, that Missouri-based outdoors writer and podcaster who will share several can't miss, must fish, smallmouth bass destinations across the Midwest and all the way to New York. And some of these destinations offer great fishing for other species too. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has published their 2022 duck population survey from the Prairie Potholes region of the United States and Canada where biologists count how many ducks of various species are in their traditional spring breeding grounds. Because of COVID, it's the first survey done since 2019, and Dr. Steve Adair, the chief scientist with Ducks Unlimited, will help us break down the numbers and explain why there are some pretty wild variations among the different species of ducks when it comes to increasing or decreasing numbers of birds. In addition to this, we'll also get to talk to one of my favorite guests. That would be Ron Spomer, that very well-known outdoors writer, television host, hunter, and shooting expert. This time around, we'll be talking about the best rifle calibers and ammunition for moose hunting. You would think a big animal, like a moose, calls for a big caliber rifle, but not so fast. Ron will dispel a few myths about this theory. Before we get into all of this, though, let's head to the Pacific Coast where the salmon fishing is on fire. Next up on America Outdoors Radio, we are taking you to the mouth of the Columbia River in the Pacific Ocean, bordering Washington and Oregon. That's where arguably the most popular salmon fishery in the entire Northwest takes place every August. It's the Buoy 10 Salmon Fishery. And with us here to tell you about an incredible sight he experienced yesterday during some great fishing is Bill Monroe Jr., the owner of Bill Monroe Outdoors. Bill, great to have you back on the air again. Hi, John. Thank you very much. So I was checking out your Facebook page yesterday, and oh my gosh, what a scene you experienced while you're out with your clients fishing. Why don't you go ahead and and share it with our listeners? Boy, yeah, you know, we are experiencing some salmon fishing unlike any other previous years in the last probably 10. We're going to go back about 10 years for where I can remember seeing anything like this. It's just phenomenal and the ocean is actually performing so well that they're having to shut certain sections down because it's overperforming and that's actually a really good sign for things to come. Yesterday I took my clients out they were from Utah and uh, they wanted to experience two days of this buoy 10 fishery so we fished one day inside 
And then we decided to do one day outside, even though they weren't quite sure what the ocean Everybody thinks the ocean is kind of scary and, and, you know, mean, and that's just not the case. Sometimes it can be absolutely mean, but if you know what you're doing, you can get out there, and once you get past certain areas, the ocean is actually a phenomenal experience out of the Oregon and Washington coastal zones. It's really great. So we decided after we fished Saturday inside, we, we got four nice hatchery Chinook. We had to sort through a lot of them to get the hatchery fish because that's the rules this year but outside you can get any chinook and hatchery coho combination so we did that for our sunday part of the trip and we went out to a spot that i've been fishing pretty exclusively i go way north and i go way actually out about 18 almost 20 miles and it's just uh, it's just a phenomenal experience the fish are all staging out there they're feeding on anchovies they're feeding on candlefish, needlefish, you name it. It's just a great experience. So we decided to head out there, and we did. And we were um, we were greeted by, as soon as I dropped the lines in, we had our first quadruple on wow. coho. All of our rods buried at once, and that was a real experience because that turns into kind of a, a hot mess, if you know how salmon fishing goes. Oh, yes. Oh, boy. Yeah, yeah. And then so I just kept trolling west, thinking that we were going to just get into them. And then all of a sudden, a lot of birds started showing up. And those are the, the coastal Pacific shearwaters that we all know to follow sometimes. Because when the shearwaters are on the surface, that means that they're bait being pushed up from the bottom of the ocean by, you know, probably salmon. And that's kind of a big deal. So they started showing up, and then whales started showing up. And then all of a sudden, we had like, I don't know, probably 30 or 40 bites in about 45 minutes. We got all of our fish. We were all done, and we were all just amazed by the biomass of life that was going on. And then it just got more intense. Uh, We stopped fishing, and we just kind of just sat there. About a thousand Pacific hookfin dolphins showed up. We actually started seeing coho jump like five feet in the air. There were fish everywhere, birds, fish, you name it. It turned into what we call just kind of just chaos for about a half hour. And it was really intense. And we actually, I think, there were some ginormous water splashes that were going on. And they were probably tuna but most likely they were the bluefin tuna that can come closer to shore because they're the tuna that are able to self-regulate their body temperatures where albacore don't really do that. That's why they hang out in, in the warmer water and they feed out there. It was incredible. It was just something to behold. And last year, like I told you, we experienced something like this, but not on this scale. Not even close. Not even close. So it's it been a it's been a epic. good Chinook run this year, and yep. the Coho run is forecast to be upwards of a million fish. How long yep. is this great buoy ten fishery going to keep going? You know, the buoy ten zone is actually slated to fish through Labor Day, so that's kind of a good sign. Right now, it ends the hatchery only matrix on the twenty fourth, and then the twenty fifth, you can keep any chinook inside the buoy 10 zone so that's going to be a plus 
I actually see this whole thing going through Labor Day and performing up to what they have the expectations set to. And with the way I've seen things, I wouldn't be surprised if the Chinook forecast gets increased significantly. The Chinook numbers are forecasted to be actually low this year, and I just don't see it. Right. And then when you combine this with the uh, seven to 800,000 coho that are slated to come back, and most of them are actually going to be the B-run index, which are even bigger coho, and they'll actually fish all the way through probably Halloween in October. So we actually have a phenomenal period to just can keep on fishing. It's going to be great. Uh, Chinook will close like it's supposed to for Labor Day, but they actually increased the bag limit for hatchery coho to three per person the day after Labor Day. So we're just going to keep after, you know. Obviously, be great. a great year to be salmon fishing at the mouth of the Columbia River and in the Columbia River, too. And if you want to take advantage of it, Bill Monroe Jr. is one of the great guides out here in the Pacific Northwest when it comes to salmon fishing. Mm-hmm. If you want to book a trip with them, go to his website at Bill Monroe Outdoors. That's BillMonroeOutdoors.com. Or go to his Facebook page at Bill Monroe Outdoors and check out the video and the photos mm-hmm. he has of that day on the water he just described. And then contact him and see if you can book a trip and go fishing this summer, this fall, for this incredible salmon opportunity. Bill, thanks for sharing this with us today on America Outdoors Radio. That's great, John. Thanks so much. You take care. Why book at Sportsman's Cove Lodge? Why is Alaska like no other place on Earth? It hasn't changed in thousands of years. From the way you get here on a float plane to the way you go out with the guides and the boats, it's just a professional experience. And I said, this is as good as it gets. I said, if you can't catch fish here, you can't catch fish anywhere. Your experience with us will leave you speechless. Book now at alaskasbestlodge.com. In today's news, I'm cooking a brisket. Let's go to Jill at my house to see how it's going. This is your house and you brought me and the crew to check on your brisket? That's correct, Jill. How's it looking? This is a Camp Chef Woodwind Wi-Fi. You know you you can check your cook right from your phone, right? I didn't know that was an option, Jill. Well, never mind. But before you leave, can you feed the dog? What? No, no. When we get back, why is my check engine light on? The answer may shock me. Hunting and fishing are exercises in hope. Before you head into the woods, you hope to tag out on a deer you'll have to field dress. Before you make that first cast, you hope for a big fish to clean and fillet. When your hopes are realized, you'll need a sharp knife. Whether you sharpen that blade on a power sharpener in the shop or a manual sharpener in the field, WorkSharp has the tool for you. Look for WorkSharp products in sporting and stores near you or online at WorkSharpTools.com. Hunt of a Lifetime is a nationwide nonprofit organization dedicated to providing hunting and fishing trips to youth 21 and under who suffer from life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. These adventures make big differences in the lives of those who participate in them, and in many cases are literally a dream come true that brings hope and therapy to their lives. Find out more, get involved, or donate today at huntofalifetime.org. That's huntofalifetime.org. Huntofalifetime.org.
You're back in with America Outdoors Radio. I'm John Cruz. Our next stop is the Show Me State of Missouri. We're checking in with outdoors writer and podcaster Brandon Butler. You really should check out his website, Driftwood Outdoors, and also subscribe to his podcast, Driftwood Outdoors. Really covers a lot of ground, especially if you're in the Midwest. There's a lot there for you as a hunter and an angler. Brandon, welcome back to the show. Always glad to be here, John. Really appreciate it. So I was stalking you, as I often do, on your website and Facebook, and ran across a really interesting article, Five Must-Fish Destinations for Smallmouth Bass. And you and I, I think we can both agree on something. Smallmouth bass, they are a whole lot of fun, aren't they? Oh, it's my favorite. Absolute hardest fighting pound-for-pound fish in fresh water. You know, I can't deny that. I mean, if... You know, you have a smallmouth and a largemouth side by side. That smallie always seems to fight harder. doesn't just come to the surface of the water, often comes out of the water. They are a hard tugging fish, a lot of fun to catch. And I thought we'd just run through some of the places that you consider to be must-fish destinations. One of them's in Kentucky, Laurel River Lake. Tell us about this one. So my great-grandparents lived right there. My grandma, my mother's mother, she lived in a cabin until she was 18 that didn't have electricity or indoor plumbing and you know it was like a a throwback in time to go down to that area when I was a kid and uh, we would always go out and fish that lake and in fact it's one of the first places I ever caught a smallmouth it's you know it's a mountain lake it's beautiful clear water very few homes around the lake just a really beautiful part of the country economically depressed part of the country so any tourism that can get down there is going to help out those people and uh, i don't think anybody that goes down there is disappointed with the fishing or the scenery and it's also worth noting that this isn't just a smallmouth bass lake it's a good place for big largemouth bass and spotted bass too isn't it absolutely yeah kentucky spotted bass you know kentucky's got their own bass named after the state so if you've never caught a kentucky which is kind of in between the smallmouth and largemouth, size and fight. You know, it's a great place to go get the trifecta. Our next stop is the St. Joseph River, bordering Michigan and Indiana. Why is this such a great fishery? Well, I could have named a bunch of different rivers in, in that part, but it's to me it's a great fishery because I grew up fishing it. I grew up in northern Indiana, and the St. Joe's, one of the first rivers I fished. And for me, I enjoy fishing rivers more than I, I enjoy fishing lakes. I'm not a big electronics guy when it comes to fishing. I like the idea of being able to read the water and just instinctively know where the fish should be. I feel like that's a lot easier to do in a river than it is on a reservoir. So the St. Joe's, you know, it's loaded with smallmouth. It's also got steelhead. There's a salmon run, uh, walleye, great all-around fishery. But it's, again, one of the first places I got after smallmouth as a kid and just great, great fishery. Last week, we were talking to Keith Eshbaugh. He's a walleye guide and a, a lure manufacturer, owns Dutch Fork Custom Lures, about the phenomenal walleye fishing on Lake Erie. But you have this as a must-fish destination for smallmouth bass, too, don't you? I do, and I've fished out there uh, actually with a fly rod. Oh, wow. Now, it's, con- it's controversial at times you know, to, to go after spawning fish, but we got into some spawning fish once on Lake Erie. Of course, released them all. But we were sight fishing to just giants, just slobs in shallow water with fly rods. I never weighed one, but multiple five-pound-plus smallmouth in one day. We were close to Buffalo, New York, when we were doing that. There's smallmouth throughout Lake Erie, also southern Lake Michigan, and northern Lake Michigan for that matter. I've caught some incredible smallmouth up by Beaver Island. Uh, But I grew up right on the southern tip of Lake Michigan, and 
fishing the break walls in Gary and East Chicago, uh, one of the unknown gems of smallmouth fishing is the Great Lakes, and Lake Erie is as good as any of them. You go over there walleye fishing, just to add to that, you go over there walleye fishing, you make a trip, and I think the limit's still five walleye. And I've been over there multiple times with charters where we were done in 45 minutes. You go out, you catch your jig, 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 bam, 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 fill the box. Now what are you going to do all day? Right. Well, you can go smallmouth fishing. Sounds like a, a great opportunity to me. I, I love walleye, and I love catching smallmouth bass, so Lake Erie definitely sounds like the place to go. Let's head to the sunflower state of Kansas, Wilson Reservoir. I'm not familiar with this one. Yeah, it's the largest reservoir in Kansas, I believe. Could be wrong. I'm doing a, a column every month for Game and Fish. Game and Fish is consolidated down to four regionals, which I love because I, I really feel like it's made the magazine more robust. And I do the uh, regional roundup for the Midwest. So to be fair, I've not fished smallmouth in that lake. However, I've read a bunch about it. I've reported on it. I've interviewed people about it. And I just wanted to give some love to the, um, the people out in the western part of the Midwest. And Kansas is, in my opinion, perhaps the greatest hunting state in the country when it comes to diversity and opportunity. And, you know, finding places to fish out there, I, I like to shed a little light on as well. Well, we have some new listeners tuning in today from KGGF AM 690 out of Coffeyville, Kansas, who would probably agree with you completely on that. All right, let's head to Indiana. You are the host of Driftwood Outdoors, and by pure coincidence, the Driftwood River is also a really good place to catch smallies. Yeah, people often ask me, like, why the name Driftwood? And I had moved back from Montana. I was convinced my fly fishing had ended when I crossed back across the Mississippi River. Unbeknownst to me, uh, smallmouth are probably more fun to catch on a fly rod than trout. And I started looking around for places to go. And the Driftwood River, right over by Columbus, it's, it's like dynamite, man. It's a small package. It's only about 20 miles long, but it's formed by the confluence of two good, smaller smallmouth rivers, and then it goes into the East Fork of the White, which is a much larger river. And it has, uh, the East Fork has some smallmouth, but I feel like big boys just kind of stack up in that short run of the driftwood, and there's just no pressure on them. It's big enough to float a boat down. It's just a a special little spot south of Indianapolis, close to a big metropolitan area, but you can get out there and have it to yourself. We're rolling into September here pretty quick, and I know this is an excellent month for smallmouth bass fishing. Do you have any plans to go out this month, and if so, where? Yeah, the uh, some of the places that are must-fish that I didn't give the names to are rivers down in the Ozarks of southern Missouri, where I spend a lot of time. But I will definitely be on a couple of those Ozark rivers in, in Missouri that shall remain unnamed. But <laughs> you can't really go wrong on any of them. You know, if you do any, any kind of research, you'll find there's just a plethora of outdoor opportunities in the Ozarks that people aren't that aware of. I mean, incredible trout fishing. Down by Branson, we've got Taney Como flirting with the world record brown trout. We're only off by like two pounds. So there's there's phenomenal tailwater trout fishing. There's there's wild trout fishing in our blue ribbon streams. We have nine of those. And then the smallmouth. You know, to me, there's just nothing better than wade fishing, you know, shorts and good pair of river shoes, no shirt and a fly rod in these crystal clear waters. And, and fall is the time to do it. You know, the water's still warm enough to wet wade, uh, but the fish are starting to put on the feed and, you know, just heaven on earth for me to get out in a river that's clear and free-flowing and 
fly rod fish for smallmouth. I was going to say, sounds like a working definition of heaven to me. Smallmouth bass fishing <laughs> nice. all sorts of fun. And if you want to find out more, check out his article at driftwoodoutdoors.com. And check out Brandon Butler's podcast, too, Driftwood Outdoors. It drops every week, and you can get it on just about any platform you're going to catch a podcast on. It's all over the place, and it's really worth listening to. Brandon, thanks for making the time today on America Outdoors Radio. Really appreciate it, John. Thank you. Cove Lodge in Southeast Alaska is booked for the season, which means now is the time to book for next year. And you'll want to do so soon because at the end of a typical summer, the lodge is over 80% booked. The reasons? The great fishing, the wonderful location, the comfortable accommodations, the fantastic food, and the over-the-top customer service. You'll find it all at Sportsman's Cove Lodge. Book today at alaskasbestlodge.com. Come explore the Dalles in Oregon for outdoors fun. Hike amongst the wildflowers, bike our riverfront trail, or visit the Gorge Discovery Center where you can enjoy a live raptor display. Or even check out our National Neon Sign Museum. But don't forget the fishing. We've got salmon, steelhead, bass, walleye, and monster-sized sturgeon waiting just for you. When the day is done, tell those tall tales at one of our wineries, breweries, or restaurants and plan your next adventure. Find out more at explorethedalles.com. Welcome back to America Outdoors Radio. I'm John Cruz. We have got the numbers in the 2022 waterfowl survey from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. has been published by Ducks Unlimited. And with us here to tell you what those numbers are and what they mean is Dr. Steve Adair, the chief scientist for Ducks Unlimited. Dr. Adair, welcome to the show. Thank you, John. Good to be here. Let's start off with the fact that this is the first survey that's been done since 2019 because of COVID. How are the overall numbers looking this year? So, John, they are down from the last time we had the survey in 2019, about um, 4 million birds overall. That was not unexpected because we knew during 2020 and 2021 that we had dry conditions in portions of the prairie pothole region and especially in 2021, the drought was widespread across all of the prairies of the U.S. and Canada. And, and based on past surveys and all the research that the partners in DU have done over the years, we know when the prairies are dry that the production of young goes down. And um, even though we didn't have the surveys to verify that, this was pretty much in line with our expectations. So in 2019, we were looking at total duck numbers in the survey area of about 39 million. This year, we're looking at 34 million. That's a 12% drop, a 4% drop from the long-term average since 1955. And again, this is drought-related. It's understood. Why don't you explain how this survey works in, in the survey area itself? 
Yeah, you bet. So it has a, a long-standing set of transacts, and transacts are lines that are flown year after year so that that's repeatable and, and standardized, and those stretch across the prairie pothole region of the U.S. and Canada. They also go into the boreal forest in Canada and into Alaska, and basically the way they work is a pilot An observer will fly in an airplane at about 200 feet, and they count all the ducks that they can see from the plane out to uh, about a mile uh, distance, and that is tallied up. And they do have uh, ground crews that also count along the way at specific points to give what they call a correction factor. So the way to think about that is in years when there is not much vegetation in the wetlands, the, the pilots tend to see most of the birds that are there, when vegetation is really thick, they miss some. And so the ground count provides a correction factor to what we see from the air. And um, it's an important part of that whole equation. Very interesting. So when it comes to breeding ducks from the survey, some numbers are really popping out because they do break it down by species. The northern pintail down 21% from 2019 and an astonishing 54% off the long-term average. What is going on with our beloved sprigs? Yeah, you know, that is troubling for all of us. I think some of the dominant theories, John, are that, uh, first of all, pintails really prefer the shallow, more temporary water. So during the drought, there was very little water like that. And so when there's very little sheet water, pintails are not stimulated to breed and they tend to just skip uh, breeding. So I would imagine, again, we're kind of speculating here without numbers in 2020 and uh, 2021, but consistent with their behavior that most pintails probably didn't even attempt to breed in those two years. And therefore, you had very little young being produced and you just have adults trying to survive. So that's the short-term comparison from 2022 to 2019. The long-term There's still a fair amount of interest and theory with that. Uh, One of the leading theories today is that much of the Canadian prairies used to go through this um, fallow stage in their crop rotations, and that's where they would uh, skip a year with their wheat and canola crops and just let a field grow up into natural cover, natural weeds, and pintails are attracted to nest and in those type of habitats, and they would do pretty well back in the 70s and 80s. That practice has ceased to occur in Canada. There are crops uh, in the fields every year, and we know that cropped uh, nesting sites tend to get uh, run over by tractors and tend to have higher predation rates. And so that is one of the things that we think is going on with pintails just because of their behavior to nest in low cover areas and cropland areas that they are having more trouble with their nest success than some of the other waterfowl species. Wow. That's really interesting. And folks, you could literally say pheasant instead of pintail and have a similar answer for why Pheasant numbers are down across a lot of America for exactly that same reason because of changing farming practices over the last 40 years. But getting back to ducks, mallard numbers only down 9% from the long-term average, but a pretty dramatic drop down 23% from 2019. Are we seeing the same thing where they're just not breeding because of the low water conditions? We are. We are, John. So, um, you know, mallards are interesting because they do breed across a whole spectrum of the landscape. So they'll breed in the Great Lakes region. They'll breed in 
you know, California and Washington and Oregon, they'll breed in the boreal forest. So they do have a wider uh, breeding distribution. But when you look at the overall numbers, the vast majority of them are in the prairie pothole region. So I think as the prairies go, so does the overall mallard population. So the next one is a riddle to me. Green-winged teal down 32% from 2019, but still the long-term average. Blue-winged teal up 19% and up 27% over the long-term average. Why the disparity over very similar species? Yeah, so even though they're in the same family and are closely related, they do breed in very different landscapes. So blue-winged teal are, are very much prairie nesters, so they focus in on the Dakotas and, and Saskatchewan and Manitoba and Alberta. And they actually will stop south of the survey area. So in some years, if you have lots of rain in Kansas and Nebraska, places like that, then teal will, will blue-winged teal will stop and breed there. And so I think what, what we saw this year was with all the water in the Dakotas and Manitoba that the blue wings really were attracted to that landscape and have done really well. The green-winged teal, they, they venture further north, so they go into the boreal forest and very few of them nest in the prairie region, so they're kind of separated that way geographically. And we're still scratching our heads a bit, John, about both green-winged teal and um, widgeon, American widgeon that breed in the boreal forest, why they would be down as much as they are. And so I've been talking to a number of researchers up there over the last few weeks, and there's some some indication that maybe the timing of the survey winter or I guess spring was slow to come in the northern reaches this year. Things stayed cold and frozen. So there's some speculation that maybe those birds had not arrived yet or were in different places. You know, it's kind of hard to really determine if that was the case, but that is some of the speculation about a green-winged teal and widgeon. So that's kind of where we are in our thoughts today. And I, I think if some of the research data comes in from the summer nesting studies, we'll have a little better idea of, of how that really played out. One piece of good news, folks, though, is the redhead, which is a very handsome bird indeed. They are up 35% from 2019 and 36% over the long-term average. Would like to pick your brain on that, but we're running short on time. And I have one last question for you here. We only have a minute left. You know, Ducks Unlimited is all about conserving habitat for ducks, but you can't control the weather. And so during these periods of drought, what's one or two things that Ducks Unlimited does to help our duck populations? Good question, John. And so, you know, we continue to work diligently in the prairie pothole region to um, preserve wetland and conserve nesting cover so that when water returns, the birds will be ready to go and have good habitat. I would say the other main thing is that DU works across the entire continent. So we're working in the boreal forest and the Great Lakes and the Gulf Coast and the Central Valley of California and the Chesapeake Bay. So everywhere the birds go, we're making sure that they have abundant and healthy habitat so that they can persevere through these tough times. Ducks Unlimited, they do a lot of great work. They've been doing it for a long time to conserve waterfowl all over North America. If you're not a member already, check out the website, ducks.org. See what they have to offer. Consider joining and attending a banquet near you. Dr. Adair, thanks for sharing this with us today on America Outdoors Radio. You bet. Thanks for having me, John.
This portion of the show is brought to you by our friends at WorkSharp. And if you are hunting this fall, you know the importance of a sharp knife. You're going to need it for gutting that animal, butchering that animal, taking the hide off that animal, and there's a good chance you have to sharpen it more than once while you're doing these things in the field. That's why a pocket knife sharpener or the guided field sharpener from WorkSharp are great items to have with you. Whether you're after deer, elk, pronghorn, or bear, a sharp knife helps you get things done after you drop that animal. Look for WorkSharp products at sporting goods stores, hardware stores, and ranch and home stores near you, or online at WorkSharpTools.com. That's WorkSharpTools.com. Hunt of a Lifetime is a nationwide nonprofit organization dedicated to providing hunting and fishing trips to youth 21 and under who suffer from life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. These adventures make big differences in the lives of those who participate in them, and in many cases are literally a dream come true that brings hope and therapy to their lives. Find out more, get involved, or donate today at huntofalifetime.org. That's huntofalifetime.org. Huntofalifetime.org. Country Hunters and Anglers. You may have heard of us, but what are we about? BHA is the voice for your wild public lands, waters, and wildlife. From national level policy work to boots on the ground projects like public land cleanups, we work across North America to uphold the legacy of our public lands and waters, as well as your opportunity to hunt, fish, and recreate on them. Stand up for public lands and waters and become a BHA member today. Visit backcountryhunters.org. Ready to step up to a quality-built rifle or shotgun that's a true classic? Check out Henry Repeating Arms, American-made. There's over 200 models to choose from in a variety of finishes and calibers for hunters and target shooters. Many of these are lever-action models with a look right out of the Old West. Don't be deceived, though. Henry Repeating Arms are modern, rugged, accurate, reliable, and have a lifetime guarantee. Find out more and order a free catalog today at HenryUSA.com. That's HenryUSA.com. You're back in with America Outdoors Radio. I'm John Cruz. We've got Ron Spomer on the line, that very famous outdoors writer, television host, and more. And the subject this time is moose hunting. Ron, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks, John. Good to be with you. Well, you just released a, a new video about the best calibers for moose hunting. I want to get into this, but before we do, let's talk about moose hunting and why you love to do it. I understand you've been moose hunting in both Canada and Alaska with great success. Yeah, I don't know. I started moose hunting back in the mid to late 80s, I believe, or early 90s. And I just love it because of, A, the size and magnificence of the animal, but also the country it lives in. You know, you're pretty much talking about wilderness, if not deep into the mountains at least. So it's kind of a special opportunity. It's not like your everyday backyard deer hunt. You're really heading out into the wilderness to have a full experience. Well, the sheer size of these animals, too. Uh, I guess I never knew the poundage, but, you know, up to 1,400 pounds for a big bull, that's a lot bigger than any mule deer or whitetail deer you're going to shoot. <laughs> Boy, you've got that right. you darn right. Yeah, you're going to be handling a lot of meat, so there's a lot of work. We always say once your moose is done, that's when the real hunt begins because you have to pack all that meat out, and it's heavy. Well, before we pack it out, we've got to get that animal down, and that's where the whole idea of the right caliber for the job comes in. It being a big animal, most people would assume that you need a big caliber. Is that necessarily true? 
Yeah, that's kind of why I did that video, because it really isn't true. Uh, everyone thinks, and it makes sense, big animal, you need a big bullet, right? But in reality, you get a good bullet into the vitals on a moose, and you've got them. I have taken them with bullets as light as 120 grains, and I don't think I've ever used one heavier than 200 grains. So a lot of Alaskans, of course, that are sort of subsistence hunters living up there, they'll take them with not just 3030s and 243 Winchesters, but even 223 Remington, if you can believe it. Wow. <laughs> Does that sound a little crazy? I don't think in good conscience the average hunter should be going after a moose with a 223 or a 243. <laughs> what are some calibers you would recommend? Because for most hunters, the moose is it's a once-in-a-lifetime hunt. They're probably going to buy a right. rifle specifically for the hunt. What's a couple calibers you'd recommend? You know, you never go wrong with a 300 Win Mag or something equivalent or a 7 Rem Mag. But if, if that recoil issue is going to jeopardize your accuracy, don't hesitate to stick with your typical deer cartridges. 270 Winchester, 7mm 08 Remington, 308 Winchester. I think the lightest I ever used was a 6.5-06, which is a 26 caliber 30-06 neck down to 26. And they work just fine. The critical part is the bullet, John. You've got to have a bullet that's going to get through. I don't know if you remember the story of the invention of the partition bullet by John Nosler, but that was precipitated by his hunt up in British Columbia for a moose that he kept hitting with bullets from a 300 H&H Magnum, and they didn't penetrate deep enough to do the job. The bullets just weren't, weren't holding together. So that's why he made that controlled expansion partition bullet. And that seems to be what's more critical than the diameter of the bullet or even its velocity. If you can get that bullet into the rib cage, hit that heart-lung area, that's why the 223 will work for very patient, cautious hunters who pick their shots. But as you said, I don't want to spend my once-in-a-lifetime moose hunting and have it all hinge on the 223 doing the job. Oh, I yeah. think you're I, way I better, better served. I love the yeah. idea of the 300 wind mag because that's a, that's a rifle a lot of elk hunters and bear hunters already own. But right. what, what would be one that would have maybe a little less recoil that's still, you know, heavy enough to do the job? Well, 30-06 comes to mind, obviously. It's done it all for 100 years and more. And 308 right behind it. It's only 100 feet per second slower. And I watched a, a young lady up in uh, British Columbia in the same camp I was in shoot a moose one-shot 308. It went about 10, 20 yards and tipped over. So, yeah, that can definitely do the job. I've used a lot of 7 millimeters. 280 Remington is good. As I said, the 270 Winchester, gosh, I had good luck with that, too. So, yep, anything in that category will do it. Just make sure you've got a bullet that's going to, if you hit that front shoulder, you want a bullet that's going to stick together well enough to reach the vitals. If you put it behind the shoulder, you're just going through the ribs, and it's not much different than shooting a mule there. All right, let's talk about something else here, and that's about you. You've got a website, ronspomeroutdoors.com. You've got a YouTube channel that you can find if you go to Ron Spomer Outdoors, and you really should subscribe to that channel like I do, folks. But you've got some videos on your website that are embedded in some of your blogs that are not on your YouTube channel. What's going on with that? Yeah, well, as most of us know, there are certain topics that YouTube is not real fond of, and firearms are one of them. So there are many restrictions on what you can show. And yet, I've got a lot of fans who want good, solid information on ballistics and rifles and how they work and these sorts of things. So we've started embedding those in blogs, and that way we can show the necessary details and the good information without fear of being canceled or 
somehow getting in trouble with the authorities on these social media channels. So it's working out pretty well. It just, uh, of course, you reach so many more people on YouTube because they're just going through the cycle and looking at thumbnails and saying, oh, that looks interesting, and they click on it. Whereas to get it on ronspomeroutdoors.com, obviously, you have to go to my website. But if you're looking for good, solid information on gun reviews, how they work, hand-loading, and things that I can't put on those social media channels, we are now starting to put more and more of those into our blog. So we'll have a written account of the topic, and then we'll have that video embedded in it so you can watch it. Well, when it comes to YouTube, I know the way you support anybody is by watching the ads that are part of it. Don't skip them over because you're actually not helping out the person when you do that if you want to support them. As for your website, I understand you can become a patron, and that's a way to financially support you so you can continue to write and do the great work you're doing. Yeah, that is really a great program. The Patreon helps out because folks who enjoy getting our materials and feel like they'd like to contribute, it's sort of like passing the plate in church. You know, here's a little bit of a donation, and boy, it really helps. Sort of like the old uh, artists you know, having a patron saint there, sort of a thing that back in the day where they would help out so you could buy your paint and take your time to, to paint the masterpieces. I don't know that I'm making any masterpieces, but folks who enjoy what I put out, I'm joined on Patreon and they can support me with a, a couple of dollars a month all the way up to whatever they'd like. We have different categories and you can ask me questions and get uh, consultations on guns and hunting and whatever you need and early access to my videos, for example, and we have a newsletter and all this fun stuff. And it's just a really wonderful community who helped me out. I don't know if they, if I didn't have that kind of support and not just the the financial support, but the moral support. These folks write in and they just are so appreciative of what I do that it encourages me to continue. So I really want to thank my patrons and invite anyone else who'd care to join up. It just really helps. Well, I hope a lot of our listeners will because you are certainly one of my favorites in terms of one of the most knowledgeable hunters and shooting experts out there and i love the fact you've got a couple platforms where we can enjoy what you have and i do hope people will support you the website again ronspomeroutdoors.com the youtube channel again ronspomeroutdoors check them both out support ron spomer and keep learning to be a better shooter and hunter thanks as always ron oh thank you john have a good one you heard Ron mention the 308 is a good caliber, and I've got a great rifle for you in that caliber to check out. It's the Henry Long Ranger. It's actually the Henry rifle I own in 6.5 Creedmoor, but it also comes in 308 and 223 and 243. And this is a rifle that is made for hunting, whether you are after moose or deer or other big game. The Henry Long Ranger, it looks good. It has a removable four-round magazine, plus it'll hold another round in the chamber, so you can make those follow-up shots in a hurry. It is a lever-action rifle, and you can buy it either with iron sights or put a scope on it, your choice. It shoots accurately, it is rugged, it's reliable, it looks great, and like all of Henry's rifles. It is made in the USA. So check out the Henry Long Ranger from Henry Repeating Arms. Just go to henryusa.com. Look for a dealer near you. If you have any questions, ask the award-winning customer service staff. And while you're at it, don't forget to ask for your free decals and catalog too. The website again, henryusa.com. And the rifle to get is the Henry Long Ranger. On that note, we've got to wrap things up for the week. I'd like to thank our guest, Ron Spomer, Dr. Steve Adair, 
Brandon Butler and Bill Monroe, they all shared some great information with us this week. And I don't know about you, they all motivated me to go hunting and fishing. Like I said, I'm going to be dove hunting in a few days with my son. Also going on a family camping trip out on the Washington coast. Can't wait for that. And I hope that you have some outdoors adventures planned too, whether it's on the water, in the woods, or maybe in a dove field. Here's hoping you're blessed and healthy as well. And until next time, do remember this. It is your country and you're outdoors, so get out there and enjoy it. A seafood bounty is waiting for you on Northwest Oregon's Tillamook Coast. Catch a limit of big salmon, haul up a pot of delicious crab, plan your visit today at TillamookCoast.com.